0: This is The Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Welcome into the show. My name is Braden Dennis, as always, joined by the graceful Simon Belanger and Sir, this is this is the definition today of the show goes on. We're about to do some back to back to backs, so that you, during the holidays, as the listener, get content coming out of both shows, all the hosts, all holidays long, uh, without a break. So expect expect a lot out of us and some fun episodes too at this time of year.
1: Yeah, exactly, and that's why I'm going to be sounding the same probably for uh, quite a few episodes where I'm like still. Feels like I'm a little bit sick, but I'm feeling pretty good. It's just kind of stuffed, so people yeah, great, are wondering. Great
0: timing for the marathon of content. Yeah, yeah exactly.
1: <laughs> Five episodes and recording in two days. Uh, it's, it's a bit of a marathon, but three today is not too bad. Yeah.
0: Well, folks, today we have a regular Monday release. Just Simone and I here today. The next two episodes are going to come out. Are going to be a year in review and bold predictions for 2024, which is going to be the three amigos. It's going to be myself you and Dan Kent on uh, on the show. So today I'm going to talk about the Acry Focus Fund. I basically have two short segments and you have one long segment about private equity and then we're going to talk about moat traps at the end, which is something I've been thinking about a little bit lately so I'll explain what that is. I'll kick us off with the Acry Focus Fund. You know, you've you've heard me talk about Chuck ackery and I feel like a fraud cuz I I said, I called him Chuck Aker for probably like three or four years. I would say he was like one of my favorite investors, and I couldn't even say his name right. Like that, that, that brought me deep shame once
1: I realized I'd been saying it wrong on it's the okay. podcast. For I, so long. I called Warren Buffett and Warren Buffet for the longest time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just trying to make you feel better there.
0: <laughs> yeah, the the all you can eat uh, Warren Buffet. Dude, so the Acre Focus Fund. Is has been a monster, um, led by Chuck Ackery and, and his firm, and they've popularized something called the three-legged stool. They talk a lot about you know qualitative stuff, and they're the original compounder bro portfolio. I, I think he's owned American Tower for like twenty-five years, which has been like a two hundred beggar during that time. Something absurd. He's owned constellation software for like a hundred beggar at this point. Um, and so I'm going to go through the portfolio and then I'm going to talk about something that they call core positions versus work bench positions. So the top 10 holdings as of September 30th quarter ending MasterCard at 16%, then Moody's constellation software, visa KKR American tower, Roper, O'Reilly, Brookfield, and CoStar. So, a lot of free cash flow, free, 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 free cash flow. Words are tough. Per share growth type businesses. You know the 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 real high conviction, mostly wide moat, grow free cash flow, grow steady through acquisitions and organically. And so this portfolio, they say they have two things. They have core positions and workbench positions. All of those names have been in the portfolio for a really long time, and those would be core positions. So businesses about which we have the highest conviction regards to quality business risk. I like how they say business risk, not risk, because so much of Wall Street calls risk like volatility and And beta against the market. No business risk reinvestment opportunity and valuation. B, the workbench position, businesses, which are typically new to us. This is what, this is the key part here or where valuation has precluded greater accumulation. So instead of selling the names, they just don't add to them if they don't think the price is right. I feel like I finally have a framework for thinking about this when I read that because I bought ASML earlier this year and I was all excited about it. I thought, you know, the next few months probably going to be rough for the company too. Uh, I was expecting to add to it, but I timed it up really well when the valuation was nice and it basically ran back to where it was trading in like a month Uh, and it it was at the humming and hawing price. So for me, it's just on the work, it's on the workbench. Right, you know, I've seen better opportunities in my core positions that I own. Like this year, I've added a lot to Visa and Mastercard. I've added a lot to S and P Global. I've added quite a little bit to Constellation and and some of these names, some big tech names. So I've added to the core names and the workbench positions. Um, I feel like I have a good name for them and I just wanted to, to share this slide uh, on portfolio construction. You can go to Acre's website and portfolio construction is one of the links and you'll see exactly what I mean. And their portfolio, I highly recommend you check out his letters, his work. I think he's done a couple podcasts through the years as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I think that was good. I uh, wasn't sure that you were stopping right there, so I was raising my desk, so if people are wondering... <laughs> yeah, exactly, so there might be that in the background, but I think it's a Dude, good way to put it. these mics that we
0: have now are so mm-hmm. legit, I don't even think it picks up any of that stuff.
1: Yeah, they uh, they definitely just, um, they're great for voice-only vocals. If you want to start a band, do not get these mics because you won't hear anything else, just just hear the they're singer. perfect for
0: us, face yeah, for radio. podcast, mics. here we go.
1: Yeah, and I think what I really like what he said is it really puts it into words. I think that's almost like, I think a lot of people have that same framework, but he puts a little bit of a visual to it, and I think that's uh, that's definitely interesting, yeah.
0: Yeah, this and the three-legged stool are kind of abstract thoughts that have a gigantic uh, influence on the way I think about investing, so... Go check it out. It's all available on their website. All right, let's talk about private equity. You got a pretty big, pretty big yeah. segment here. And, and dude, this if you're in the business of investment and you're in private equity, of course you know what it is. Mm-hmm. But if you walk around like the street and you say, what do people in private equity do? Like, You probably won't get a very concise <laughs> like, answer. It's like, what do consultants do? It's like, yeah, I don't know. What do they do?
1: Yeah. And the more I read it, uh, the more I researched it and read about it and read especially some not fluff pieces that were supposed to pump private equity, because unfortunately, as people will see, they're very good at marketing and making it sound like it's this unicorn that produces much better results than the public markets all the time. It's lower risk than the private markets. These are all things that you'll hear when people talk about private equity. Well, as I'll show, there's been a lot of Exponential growth in the amount of funds for private equity, and uh, I'll just say that Wall Street definitely likes it because um, you know it makes them a lot of money. But sometimes I think it's, or actually a lot of the times, it's questionable whether it's the best type of investment for investors. And typically, we're talking about institutional investors here, so that's the typical people that will be accessing those type of funds. So institutions, just as a reminder, it's banks, pension. Sovereign wealth funds, endowments, foundations, and hedge funds will typically be like what's considered institution. You'll also be able to invest in private equity if you're an accredited investor in the U.S. and Canada. Typically, you'll need well, you'll actually need two hundred thousand in income per year, or three hundred thousand uh, if you and your spouse or have a net worth of a million dollar, excluding the value of your principal residence. So, for those who may not meet the previous requirements and thought they had the network because they bought a home 20 years ago and an increase in value well it's actually uh, it excludes that and there's different type of private equity but i'll definitely focus more on the leverage buyout type here so whenever i talk about this i'll be talking about lbo which is a leverage buyout so what's a leverage buyout so i'll start off with that lbo is what most people will refer to when they talk about p and like i said it's not the only thing in p but i'll focus on that And the private equity fund will identify a company to buy, then they'll use a bit of equity, then finance the rest to buy out with debt. So by doing so, you have the potential of supercharging your returns because of leverage. But and it's for people to wrap their heads around that is the same as buying a house, right? So if you buy a house for a million dollar and you put 20 percent down, so 200,000, it means you finance 800,000 with debt. If the home appreciates 20% in value, it's now $1.2 million, so you've now doubled your initial investment because you still have that $800,000 in debt. Let's just assume you haven't made any payment happen very quickly. But now your equity in the home is 400000 so you've only put $200,000, you have doubled your investment, so it, it, that's how you can really supercharge your investments with using leverage. But the other way around is also true, like a lot of people are finding out right now in the Canadian housing market, if this home drops 20% and is now worth $800,000, while your initial investment essentially wiped out. And you still have that $800,000 in debt. Whereas if you bought it all in cash, you know, I know not a lot of people would be able to do that, pay a million dollar in cash. Well, you you'd would you'd have still 800000 worth, you'd only be down 20%. So I think that's a cautionary tale of using leverage. And a lot of people in real estate, especially before interest rates started going up. They were essentially saying, well, you know, why wouldn't you be in real estate? You can use leverage and become rich, but it also goes two ways. It's nice when you're in a bull market, but when you're in a bear market, the other way around can be quite painful. Same thing when you invest on margin. And what happens with PE, and this is where I start being very critical of PE, is they tend to sell this as being very low risk, when in reality, there's always increased risk when using leverage. And this is where a lot of PE funds, I think personally, and you know, I'm not the only one will say that. And I'll quote, give some Warren Buffett quotes a bit later. Well, they definitely mislead. And I would go as far as sometimes they just outright lie to investors by promising or saying things that are not really all that true in reality. And honestly, there's a lot of shenanigans that happen in that world. Now, how it works The PE fund will raise capital from institutional and accredited investors. The capital will be locked in, meaning that investors cannot withdraw until the end period. The lock-in period will typically be between 7 and 10 years. And once the capital is raised, the fund starts looking for LBO deals, leverage buyout deals, like I mentioned earlier. Now, the fees, this is where it starts getting really fishy. So... If you like to get, you know, to pay fees, this is definitely uh, the investment for you. Personally, I like to <laughs> save on fees. <laughs> you, you, yeah, I mean, I know, Brayden, like, you've been pretty critical when it comes to mutual funds. This makes mutual funds look cheap. I'll just say that. In terms of fee not.
0: structure? Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, the fee structure is something else. So, there's actually more than one fee. That's one of the big issues here. So, the fund will typically... That, that's, go ahead. That's,
0: that's typically where I, I am so critical of fee structures is actually not the nominal percentage management fee like net net the entire management expense ratio it's how you actually get to that is so convoluted so confusing their clients are not able to explain it they're hardly able to explain it and guess what that's by design right like it's it's completely by design, and and that's where I have such a problem with fee structures. Is actually not even the nominal amount. While while those are ridiculous as well, it's actually the structure and added complexity for the benefit of the of, of the manager, not for the benefit of the customer. Yeah, and that's exactly. where I have an issue.
1: Yeah, it's it's great business for the fund managers. <laughs> Now, the ongoing fund management fee. So that's the first one. That's the kind of fee that people might be a bit more used to that you'll see in mutual funds, for example. So the fund will typically charge an ongoing fee of 1.5 to 3%. 2% seems to be pretty common here. But where it gets really... Shady is defeat. And this is one of the things that Warren Buffett actually criticized back. You know, he's criticized it multiple times because they had been approached by PE funds and it. I'm pretty sure he just ripped them to shred and uh, they never went ahead with that but uh, he's been very critical and I'll give you a couple quotes in a second here but the fee is charged from day one even if the PE fund hasn't found a deal yet so I'll, I'll give an example for this so for example say a fund raised a billion dollars from different investors the one billion is actually not contributed to the fund just yet it's a commitment from investor to provide this money to the PE fund once the first deal has been found so if the fund only finds the first deal a year after the start date of the fund they'll still charge the two percent management fee from day one even though they aren't producing any returns And that could potentially be acceptable if you start calculating the returns from day one before you've actually found a fee. But of course, that's not what they do. They actually start calculating the returns once the first deal is done to make essentially the fund and the returns and also hit some targets, make it easier to hit. So that's and that's one of the things that Warren Buffett has been extremely critical of how these funds actually calculate returns.
0: It's the two and twenty structure too right like that's yeah. what this is
1: yeah exactly and essentially what Buffett mentioned regarding private equity firms and the twenty nine at uh, the twenty nineteen Berkshire shareholder meeting and I'll quote here we have seen a number of proposals from private equity funds where the returns are really not calculated in a manner that I would regard as honest he added. If I were running a pension fund, I would be very careful about what was being offered to me. And this is what PE funds do, right? They go to pension funds and like various institutions, endowments. And a lot of the time where, you know, there might be a committee, whether they're well-versed investment or not. Sometimes there are, sometimes they are not. But even then, I mean... They are sometimes reluctant to questions the returns of the the P.E. funds. And one of the things that Buffett pointed out is exactly what I just talked about. So they charge that management fee from day one on committed capital, but only calculate the return once the capital has been deployed. So it's like having your lunch and eating it, too. Like to me, it's okay. You want to calculate you want to charge the fee from day one then your returns should be calculated from day one makes no sense very misleading to investors and i don't think a lot of investors actually realize that in these funds so if uh you know it's good business for the fund manager because if you're looking at the management fees if you have one billion committed in capital for 10 years and you charge 10% in management fee, then you're getting a a sweet $20 million a year, regardless of what happens. So for 10 years, that's $200 million in fee. Um, So I'm going to say, obviously, that's no wonder that Wall Street likes these funds because you can get some sweet fees, but there's more. So don't worry. These are not the only fees they charge. I was
0: going to say, not just to your thunder, but that's just the two part. We haven't talked about the two and 20 part. There is a... There's an and twenty. Just yeah. to ba- just to back up a little bit here, right? Like we're talking about a, a, f- a few things here. So you mentioned the risk, the risk piece here. Yeah. This this is this goes back to my first segment. How do you qualify? How do you quantify risk? Because if all of a sudden this instrument is less risky because it doesn't trade on public markets and get marked every day doesn't actually have anything to do with inherent risk. This has been my criticism of the word risk in financial markets since I was have ever been an investor. There is increased risk. It's the Charlie Munger three Ls. Liquor, ladies, and leverage. That's that third L. Look look it, it, it doesn't an asset is not less risky because it doesn't get marked every day. It just means it's less volatile. And that that's, that is a key, key difference between how I see risk and how a lot of fund managers sell risk. This goes to my second point. You just mentioned how they sling these things to pension funds, endowments, collect nice two and 20s off them. This is a sales business. This oh, yeah. is a relationship business. It's a sales organization where their side hustle is managing money. That's how I've always viewed these things. You know, the people that are, are managing the money and making these decisions for the pension funds and endowments, you bet your ass are going to fancy dinners with the fund managers. They're doing a- everything that you would imagine in a sales process. Because that's what this is. It is a sales-led business. And I want to be involved with fund managers who are in the investing business, not the sales business. If you look at Berkshire Hathaway, it's publicly traded zero-fee private equity. That's that's what these roll-ups and capital allocators like Berkshire Hathaway are but they're in the investing business. They're not in the sales business. Warren doesn't try to sell you his stock. He tries to sell you a story about all the businesses they own. He's very good at marketing. He's in the investment business, not in the collecting management fees business. So if you can differentiate those two things when selecting management teams, it's pretty obvious. It's not, it's actually really easy to tell. And your results will be vastly different when those operations are done differently.
1: Yeah, and even the largest pension funds, I'm talking CPP here, for example, because I've gone through, you know, not the whole thing, but, you know, some important areas on on PE and they're always like kind of, you know, showing like, oh, you know, we have PE and it provides really good return. Well, CPP, and I don't know what percentage it is that's divided between in-house private equity and... funds but they do both and i think it's around 30 percent of everything that they have that's in private equity and essentially you read and it's the same kind of structure here they say oh we give performance fees which i'll just go over now that kind of 20 portion uh, but they have to attain targets and things like that and you know i would be very surprised if i talked to you know cpp investment board if they actually really know how the rates of returns are calculated because I'll, like I'll mention a bit further on, there's the estimated investment return rates that are provided by manager. And these are self-reported, by the, by the way. So, you know, that's another issue. And there are also the final rates of return, which tend to be adjusted down when you actually close out. Because the whole point of leverage buyout is you buy a company, you put it, you know, sometimes you'll take it public to private, but you put it under your fund with the idea of selling it for a higher price you know 10 years or close to when the the fund winds down and you actually don't know what your returns will be until then so they provide the estimated IRR internal rates of returns until then now the second performance so performance fee it's also called carried interest fees so the percentage of the fee will vary but it's going to be in excess of 10 percent. can be as high as 20 percent, and it's done on a deal per deal basis so in order for them to get that fee the deal has to achieve a certain rate of return which is typically eight percent unfortunately p funds have been known to do some creative accounting when it comes to this so what they do is once they find a deal they might actually borrow from a line of credit to close the deal and only request the investor funds several months later. By doing this, the PE fund is able to calculate the IRR, so internal rates of return for the deal from the time that the investor put the money into the deal, not from the time that the deal was actually done. However, they will use the initial purchase price of the LBO that was done several months earlier. So essentially they're shrinking the time period which increases the IRR and it really that's really fishing that they're doing that because essentially it helps them achieve that eight percent. Where in a lot of cases they might not achieve it if they would get the investor fund, so the committed fund, they would get them as soon as the deal is closed. So that's a another way that it's a, a little bit fishy <laughs> how they do things, and that's one of the big criticism of PE is there's a lack of regulation around that. Anything you want to add there before I I go on to how the returns are calculated and um, the opaqueness of that? No, I, I it's
0: just important to recognize there how big of a difference the performance fee can make on your total returns if yeah. you if you look at them in aggregate, like if you do a, a calculation on the difference between the with performance fee and without it is out of control. And the problem with performance fees, and by the way, I, I'm going to have to talk about this in a second. You and I are both investors in Brookfield Asset Management. Yeah, this is this is how they make their money.
1: Oh <laughs> like, yeah, I know. We're very All
0: critical right. of it. At least they're offering something unique to the marketplace, which is you know mm-hmm. being a unique owner and operator and asset manager of alternative assets that are hard to get exposure to if you don't use them. So this is me giving them the benefit of the doubt. The where was I? Oh, it's just the performance fees. So. Is that hurdle rate? You said what? It's typically eight percent.
1: Yeah, it'll. Yes. Yeah, that's the most common one I've seen.
0: Yeah. Yeah, six, eight percent. I've seen. Sometimes they'll they'll benchmark it to like the the benchmark that they're following, or even the S and P five hundred in some rare circumstances, as like outperformance versus that. But if you have a flat, let's say eight percent hurdle, and in most cases, not private equity, but it, say say I'm managing equities and I tr- I'm running a mutual fund. And I say, okay, anything over 8%, I'm gonna collect 20% of that as a performance fee. If the market does 20% that year and I did 16%, I underperformed the benchmark and I collected 20% on 8% outperformance. So I outperformed some arbitrary number, which the market almost never does. We've talked about this extensively. Markets typically can return on average around eight to ten percent, but almost never return eight to ten percent. It's usually up big or down big, a la the last few years. That is actually normal market behavior. If you look at the last hundred years of, of of the market, and so that's also a flaw, and in my opinion, dishonest by picking an arbitrary single digit number rather than a moving benchmark.
1: No, I think that's a great point. I hadn't put that in my notes, so that's a a great point. And the returns, I've always been a bit skeptical about PE, how they valued investment, and it's been quite a while, but it really started bugging me about last year when I was preparing for a REIT episode with Dan Fos from the Canadian Real Estate Investor, and I came across some data from NAREIT, which is the National Association for Real Estate Investment Trusts in the US. And although I've mainly talked about LBOs, here leverage buyout, there are tons of private real estate fund, which are another form of PE. And in a report, Nari pointed out that discrepancy between Reed Index in 2022 and private real estate fund was a whopping 41%. So in 2022, REITs had been totally crushed by rising rates. But somehow, you know, the sector, somehow private real estate was up. I think it was like close to 10% for the year, whereas REITs were down uh, close to 30%. So, I mean, that's where it really became a bit of a head scratcher for me because you're talking about the same exact asset class. So how the hell is one down you know, 30% and the other one, 10% is up. And they'll probably say, well, there's no comps. And, you know, there's all these different excuses. But at the end of the day, I think it's a whole lot of BS. I won't say the the whole thing. I want to keep it friendly here. And first, P, don't know there, like I mentioned the IRR, the internal rates of return until all the deals have been exited. So what they'll do until then is that they provide an estimated IRR and they might use public companies for comps for that, but they can also get creative. Maybe there are 10 comparables public company. Nothing really prevents them from only choosing the top two that are the highest valuation in terms of comps because there's really no regulation behind that so they can definitely use that they might use private market comps but those can be hard if there hasn't been any recent deals and I think that was one of the excuses that a lot of these private real estate fund were using is they oh there's no There's no deals happening in private real estate so it's very hard Uh, so we'll go back to like 2019 comps or you know they they would have all these kind of excuses so what ends up happening is they will often overstate their estimated ir only to reduce them down the line when the returns are final and they've actually done their exit strategy and sold off the companies and somehow you know, these funds sell themselves as to be immune to market corrections. They'll say that it's because they are long-term investors and that the value of their investment should be calculated the same way as public markets. And, you know, sounds like they they'll definitely use public market comps when it suits them, but not when it doesn't. So it's a bit like, okay, with the markets doing well, you know, clearly the PE fund will be doing well. When it's not doing well, the PE fund's still doing well. So it's, yeah, it's a bit, You know, if you want to be consistent, be consistent. Not all firms also get independently audited. And when they do, it can be hard for auditors to fully validate their calculation. And oftentimes auditors will have to trust the fund managers to some extent. That's another issue here. And they'll also use benchmark that tend to be favorable to P funds instead of using something like you mentioned, the S&P 500 or a Vanguard or BlackRock's index ETF that would be 60-40 equity and bonds. Oftentimes it will be 60% S&P 500 and 40% just a uh, broad-based bond. Index,
0: or at least a moving a moving benchmark of the asset class that it's tracking. Yeah, you know, if, if if equities is not the right benchmark, mm-hmm. which in many cases for these funds it's not, no. that's okay. But there are moving benchmarks that can be used for the asset class, but that's that's not very convenient. The, what you're describing here is what I call "you win, I
1: win; you lose, I win." That's what it is. Yeah, exactly. The last thing in terms of return is that you'll see things like the industry has outperformed the stock market and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's based on self-reported data. Lots of fund don't report and those that do is self-reporting. So clearly that's also needs to be taken into account when it's self-reported. I mean, you know, some random person can tell you that they've tripled the market returns over the last five years and they don't they don't really give you any proof or show you anything much of there it's all self-reporting right so should you believe it should you not I mean it's hard to say now it is also one of the issues especially now is that it's becoming a really crowded market so it was hard to find data on this but essentially there's been a rapid growth in private equity investment it's more than doubled since the early 2000 wall street may say it's because of demand and maybe that's true but i think there's also really some good marketing on their part and making this this kind of unicorn with low risk low volatility that always beats the market returns and I'm going to go on a limb here and say that the rapid growth is probably because there is a lot of money to be made via fees for fund managers. They're probably pushing that pretty hard along with that marketing. Obviously not uh, being the most, yeah, I'm sure they, they are, they tell what the fees are, but oftentimes I think probably people don't fully understand how these fees come into account and they're calculated. And that means there's more competition as well for P deals. So because leverage buyouts are usually done with profitable companies so if there's more competition from various p firms then good deals will be harder to find so this can force a p firm to get into deals for the sake of it because that's the whole point right they have to get some returns if they want to get those performance bonuses and when you do that you increase the risk of not having great returns on that deal which makes you know out beating the market even harder when you're charging exorbitant fees like they um like they are now anything you want to add here the last part here shouldn't be too long
0: no my only real general comment is look leverage buyouts and this model is fantastic. Like I'm, I'm I'm, not talking about like for the fund managers or anything right now. I'm talking about as a business. There can be amazing value creating compounding machines. Look no further than uh, the list of the companies I listed in, in Acre's fund and, and the ones in my portfolio. Look at like a Roper Technologies. It's, just, it's just basically a tech PE firm that trades... As a no fee PE company at your disposal so the actual model well, look at Berkshire the actual model is is actually really amazing and it's worked for a really long time the part that you and I are critical around is what it's being marketed as with with these firms and the high fees that's that's what is uh, we're being critical of. Not the actual model, because the model has been around a long time and it works extremely well.
1: Yeah, it works. I mean, it works well when done correctly. I think that's when done correctly. Yeah, when done correctly, obviously lower rates definitely help there too. So when rates are higher, it's going to be a bit harder and because you're going to be paying more on that interest for the leverage. But uh, yeah, it's a good model. But, you know, and that's also something to think about with these PE funds is saying, okay, really, the majority of them are doing it correctly. That's also a question to ask, right? I think it's a, a valid point for that, for to be just, just that alone to be critical. And the last point here that really is not great about P funds and that is different from, you know, publicly traded companies that you're talking about is, you know, the funds are locked in. So because the money is locked in for extended periods of time, P returns should provide at least, I would say, 2% better annual returns net of fees than the stock market and that's clearly not the case and that's because you should be getting a premium for locking in funds that's how it works take a GIC why are you getting a higher yield on a GIC because you're locking in the funds and you can't withdraw them and the bank the paying will you for lack yeah like liquidity is exactly needs to
0: be factored in here yeah
1: yeah You're paying, you're essentially getting paid more because you're in in a non liquid investment. That's That's what it is. So you should be getting a premium for that versus a savings account. You'll get less. Oftentimes it's actually probably around there 2% difference, at least right now. And so who in their right mind would lock in their funds for the same or lower returns with all else being equal? No one would. But unfortunately, you know, with all the opaqueness of these returns, how the fee are calculated, I think a lot of people just don't realize it, don't know. And they'll argue that this is... You know, the fund managers will argue that it's actually a good thing that the funds are locked in because it's a long-term investment. It'll prevent you from making any stupid decisions or things like that. But a lot of this, these institutions invest the money for long periods of time anyways. So I think that that argument, I mean, is pretty mooth. It shouldn't be a reason to underperform the market or justifying the underperformance, although obviously they'll they'll say otherwise. And for me, I look the lack of transparency, the creative accounting when it comes to return, the high fees, the illiquidity of the funds, and it just yeah, it's a pretty poor investment in my view. I'm sure some in reality do beat the market. I mean, there's always going to be some outliers. So obviously that's going to happen a bit like mutual funds. Even if they charge 1.52%, they may beat the market. But to do it on a consistent basis, I think that's going to be pretty unlikely. And I'll finish on this here. Were you aware that um, Simple is offering this?
0: I am because of you.
1: Yeah, <laughs> private equity. And I was chatting with Dan on this. And look, I think Wealth Simple has done a lot of good things for making investing more accessible for Canadians, lower fees. But this, I mean, they could do better, Wealth Simple. Like, this is the page. If you go and you type in Wealth Simple uh, private equity, and you just scroll down, and then in big bold letter, you have 100 billion assets under management, 18% annualized return, gross of Oof. fees with two asterisks, Oof. and then 25 <laughs> I think plus they might your- need a couple more asterisks. Exactly. And then you have to actually drill down into the FAQ to look at how the fees are calculated. So Weld Simple charges a 0.2% to 0.4% fee for the service. And then on top of that, the private equity group charges 1.5% management fee and a 12.5% performance fee calculated on a deal-by-deal basis, like I mentioned earlier, as long as the deal earns 8%. So, you know, it's not, I'm not critical necessarily for Wealthsimple for offering this. I'm critical at how they're marketing it because most people will not drill into the FAQ, they'll see this big, bold letters. Oh my God, 18%. 18%. Whoa, That's nice. fantastic. But in reality, I'd be very surprised if this LGT firm is actually doing all that well if they use similar accounting to what regular index ETFs are doing. So I think this is just very misleading. And I think well and honestly, do better. You can definitely do better than this. Just be, like, I know you're transparent in some way about the fees, but you know when it's in big bold letters people are going to see that and they're less likely to drill down and see what the actual fees are
0: it's that searching for diversification and diversification in asset class on your fancy dashboard pie chart that has made the need for these things and the rise of aum in these things explode over the last 20 years if i'm managing harvard's 50 billion dollar tax free pension fund which is essentially a tax-free hedge hedge fund in- incredible business I want I want to own that business you can't just be 100% in equities you can't just be hundred that's that's not sophisticated enough for us prestigious people Pension fund managers. We need to sprinkle in a little bit of venture capital. I'm gonna sprinkle in a little bit of private equity. Sprinkle in a little bit of fixed income. Sprinkle a little bit of equities. You know, we're gonna get the whole gambit here for diversification sake, so that my pie chart looks like I'm doing my job and meeting my mandate. That's as simple. That's that's how I think about this. I I, I don't think that there's anything really more to it than that.
1: Mm -hmm. No, I think... I mean, I think you're right, unfortunately. But yeah, I think, sorry, I, I may have gone a little bit on a rant there, but it's a lot of research for this. And I encourage people to read more on it. There's some good books out there. And just be wary of the, you know, the articles or studies that are like really pumping private equity. Because oftentimes, they'll definitely have some vested interest in in doing so. So I, I would say just caution that. But there's definitely some, some really good uh, information out there for those are looking to get in the nitty-gritty of it.
0: Look, there's lots of money to be made for the managers. And you and I own, own Brookfield. You know, they're collecting, uh, what is it, like $340 billion of capital that they collect management fees on. This is such... You know, to bring it all the way back around, I'm here to make money. You're oh, yeah. here to make money. Mm-hmm. You're listening to this podcast to make money. And this is a very good business asset management collecting fees on on capital. It's it's software like it has software like margins, software like recurring nature with those locked in percentage fees. Oh, baby, it is a what? It's capital light. The manage the business of managing capital isn't in itself capital light it's got all, it checks all the boxes, you know, it, it does everything that you'd want. And so there's lots of money to be made here. And you know, a lot of, a lot of companies have made lots of money doing it, yeah, AKA Backfield.
1: The big difference is, you know, if you want to sell your shares tomorrow, you can. Yeah, and Brookfield's
0: not charging me a management fee, but they are no. their customers, <laughs> their business. No, no. Yeah. They are, yeah,
1: yeah, no, 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 that's fair. But I think that's the biggest difference. But you know, if the customers are going to them and they're not really reading their fees, you know, maybe they, you know, maybe it's they di- should find better people to <laughs> to be. It's, uh, it's different because those in funds. that
0: pie chart example where I'm searching for diversification, where am I going to actually get exposure to hydroelectric power, ports? highways large infrastructure projects from an owner operator and manager where where is that gonna come from and and that's an actual offering that is unique to the marketplace versus you know I'm gonna lever buy out some uh company that sells pumps to factories yeah. <laughs> no know? that's a fair point. there's I enough mean, of those around yeah
1: i think that the only thing i'll i'll add to that is maybe push back a little bit is i mean some of these funds i like my god like they have like 30 40 percent allocated to pe like is is that really diversification like uh, i mean I, you can make a counter argument right that you're concentrating a bit more clearly yes you have a broader set of assets that private equity might have access to but I think a lot of pension funds, especially the smaller ones, will end up doing quite well just investing in index funds and over private equity. But I get what you're saying. How are we doing
0: for Tom? I have a very quick segment. Should, we, should I run uh, right out here?
1: We, yeah, I mean, we could or not do it. It's up to you. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That sounds
0: like uh, in between. We're going to go for it. It's, it's quick. It's called moat traps, Okay. Dorsey Asset Management published this thing about moats. I'm going to go into more detail about other topics inside this presentation on future episodes. But it is called What's Not a Moat? They have three things here outlined that they believe is not a competitive advantage. That is, it got me thinking about, can we think of some more moat traps? Number one, dominant market share. So high absolute market share is not a moat. You know, if I'm the largest player, that doesn't actually give me a competitive advantage. Or, sorry, it might give me a competitive advantage, but it is not a durable moat by having dominant market share. Technology, they say commoditization and disruption are inevitable, absent consumer lock-in, a la GoPro and Fitbit. This has been on my mind a lot lately, like tech Changes so fast, and it's one of the hardest moats to maintain. It really is. Look at the last year of changes with with AI models. Hot products they typically generate high returns for a short period of time, but sustainable returns make a moat. So, I think this is right. You know, if you have like a graph of moat and ROIC, it's that the long, the wider the moat the longer you can extract high returns on invested capital. It's, it's, a, it's a license to maintain high returns on invested capital. And that's why it's so important. That's why moats are so important. It's like a patent on printing high returns when you have a durable, intact moat. That's the way I think about that. If you were to like graph that out qualitatively versus like a numeric high return on invested capital, it is a license to maintain that printing of money, and that's that's what a what a moat is. But like all patents and all licenses, they eventually expire, and so it's important to think about what's not actually durable and what's changing. Can we think of any like more moat traps? I'm really trying to think of some examples. Of what might come as thought of as super high moat and it wasn't like, look no further than Kodak, then IBM, Dell. So many of those things were high market share
1: and disruption that eventually became commoditized without consumer luck. Yeah, probably like first to market. Yeah. I think that's commonly seen as like almost, not commonly seen, but I think a lot of people will see that almost as a a moat. But at the end of the day, especially if it's something not very hard to duplicate, if there's money to be made, there's going to be competition. And if you don't innovate, whatever it is, right, it could be something not even that technological. If you don't innovate, you're definitely going to get your lunch eaten.
0: Yeah. And you can see that come out in margin profiles too as it starts to get eaten away at. I think when you look, that's why like with FinChat and with Stratosphere, it was so important for me to try to get visuals and tables of historic data going back further and further. Because it's a big difference between Visa achieving a 60% free cash flow margin that's maintained for 15 plus years versus NVIDIA doing that in one quarter with the data center business. It's not a knock on Nvidia. It's probably the most impressive business of this year. It's more so that that's a completely different assessment of durability. <laughs> One yeah. quarter to 15 years, right? Like those are those are entirely different things to think about. Anyways, that's that's uh, that's today's show. So we got uh Motes Acre and uh dunking on private equity.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, maybe we'll get some <laughs> uh, hate mail from private equity oh, fund managers. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, probably. bring it on.
0: Bring it on. You cannot hurt our feelings.
1: Yeah. And if you do, like, by all means, you know, send me a detailed view of how you calculate your returns and when you start charging your fees. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe it's, uh, it's, you know, maybe you'll prove me wrong.
0: We'll see. Hey, we like getting proved wrong on this show. That's what it is. It's about pushback of ideas and being a free thinker, baby. The show goes on. Let's go record two more. Yeah, we got this. We got this. Coffee refuel. The three amigos are gonna be live on the mics here for the next two episodes here on the pod. Make sure you keep tuning in through the holidays and have a great time. All right, I know a lot of people are coming into uh, you know time off for the first time in maybe months since the summertime. You know, kick back, have a good time, enjoy yourself over the holidays, and we'll be here for you here now. Or we'll check back in the new year. We'll be back
1: here too as well. So uh, enjoy your time over the holidays. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Brayden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.